0: The kingdom is spreading, O oh, tell ye the story, God's banner exalted shall be. The earth shall be full of his knowledge and glory, as waters that cover the sea.
1: Acts chapter 15 verses 6 through 18. Acts chapter 15 beginning in verse 6. Now the apostles and elders came together to consider this matter. And when there had been much dispute, Peter rose up and said to them, Men and brethren, you know that a good while ago God chose among us that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. So God, who knows the heart, acknowledged them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us, and made no distinction between us and them, purifying their hearts by faith. Now, therefore... Why do you test God by putting a yoke on the neck of the disciples which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? But we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ we shall be saved in the same manner as they. Then all the multitude kept silent and listened to Barnabas and Paul declaring how many miracles and wonders God had worked through them among the Gentiles. And after they had become silent... James answered, saying, Men and brethren, listen to me. Simon has declared how God at the first visited the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name. And with this the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written, After this I will return and I will rebuild the tabernacle of David which has fallen down. I will rebuild its ruins and I will set it up. So that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord who does all these things. Known to God from eternity are all his works. In our last study, we examined the first five verses of Acts 15 and were introduced to the doctrine of the Judaizer sect. The Judaizers were a party that developed early in the history of the church, out of a synthesis between the legalistic self-righteousness of the unbelieving Pharisees and certain principles of the Christian gospel. The Judaizers were members of the Church, and evidently they believed in the Messiahship of Jesus, they accepted that His authority should be received in addition to the authority of Moses, and they acknowledged the need to have their sins forgiven and thereby to be saved, and that this demanded faith in Jesus and baptism, for the remission of sins. But they considered that faithfulness to Jesus essentially included becoming a Jew by submission to a short list of instructions from the Law of Moses. As problematic as was their misconception that the Law of Moses in some form was still the standard for faithfulness to God, the greater problem, at least in the mind of Paul, was that they had fundamentally changed the gospel by elevating a list of special instructions to the category of essential to salvation, they had changed what it meant to have faith, that is, to be faithful to Jesus. That seems that in their minds this was good, because they made faithfulness more challenging and more exclusive, and thereby more conducive to actual lawfulness and practical righteousness and holiness. But Paul argued that. The opposite was true. Christ's true standard of faithfulness is not allegiance to a short list of instructions either from Moses' law nor even from his own law. It is a lifelong, all-consuming, relentless pursuit of the fullness of God's will as expressed in all of Christ's teaching that is not completed or perfected until the resurrection of the just. So in fact, The doctrine of the Judaizers made apathetic, inconsistent, self-deluded hypocrites of those who accepted it. It gave advantage to the flesh and to Satan rather than to God, and it would result in damnation rather than salvation. But that doctrine had infiltrated the church at Jerusalem, and it was spreading from there throughout the world and threatening to undermine the work of Christ everywhere. Certain men had come down to Antioch from Judea, claiming the backing and support of the apostles and leaders of the churches there, and taught the brethren, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. This was the shorthand expression for the Judaizer doctrine, circumcision being the chief among their list of essential requirements. Therefore, a deputation of brethren from Antioch, including Paul and Barnabas, was sent up to Jerusalem, to the apostles and elders about this question. What resulted was a meeting that has come to be called the Jerusalem Council, or the Jerusalem Conference. This is an expression worth considering. In later seasons of church history, there were significant alterations from the apostolic pattern for church government, which resulted in the creation of new offices within the body of Christ. The term bishop, which originally was synonymous with congregational elders, was set apart for a single man who oversaw all the congregations in a certain area. After a while, the bishops of prominent cities within the Roman Empire became known as metropolitans, and this created a super-congregational hierarchy that bound the participating congregations together into a society of churches and of course excluded the non-participating congregations as heretical and illegitimate. The society was that entity which in time was called the Catholic Church, and through which entered almost all the departures from primitive Christianity which now plague the Christ-professing world. The bishops of the Catholic Church convened councils of differing degrees of importance, the highest being an ecumenical council, that is, a council of representatives from across the universal church, and these councils debated and discussed contentious issues within the Christian community and handed down decrees that were to be accepted by all believers on pain of heterodoxy. And this system was justified by appeals to what took place here in Jerusalem. However, I suggest that there are significant distinctions between the Jerusalem Conference and the later ecclesiastical councils. First, this was not a meeting of all the church leaders in the world, nor even all the leaders in a region. It was a meeting of brethren from Antioch with the apostles and elders in Jerusalem, specifically addressing a teaching that came to Antioch and claimed to be originating in Jerusalem. There were, so it appears, certain features of this meeting that resemble the later councils, but as we meet them in the text, we will consider how close the resemblance truly is. Acts 15.4 says, When Paul and Barnabas and company had come to Jerusalem, they were received by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they reported all the things which God had done with them. But, continues verse 5, some of the sect of the Pharisees who believed rose up saying, It is necessary to circumcise them and to command them to keep the law of Moses. So these were either the originators of the Judaizer doctrine, or at least some of those who were its main proponents in Jerusalem. Continuing in verse 6. Now the apostles and elders came together to consider this matter. The language indicates that this was a different gathering than the one in verse 4, perhaps a day or so after deliberation and discussion between Paul and Barnabas and the Jerusalem leaders. It does seem that all of the apostles were present for this meeting, but that does not imply that it was a universal or ecumenical council. Rather, it reminds us that the apostles had not yet left Jerusalem to tend to the work Jesus assigned to them in the Great Commission. That's a fact worth noting and remembering. The elders would specifically be the elders of the congregation where James served, from which the Judaizers were evidently claiming authority for their teaching and work. It is possible that there were elders from other congregations present, but the language of Luke is, as always, rather ambiguous on that subject. When Luke says that these came together to consider this matter, what is the matter they were considering? Literally, the phrase means, to look into this word, that is, the thing which those who believed from among the Pharisees had claimed. Did they not know what they believed regarding the necessity of circumcision and law-keeping for Gentiles, or how people were justified by Christ? Well, it is difficult to say. Certainly, there had been some softening of the resolve which Peter, James, and John expressed when Paul and Barnabas came to see them in Acts chapter 11. Evidently, James, and perhaps others among the elders with him, had become concerned by someone, as James calls him, who was teaching that if justification was possible without obedience to the law of Moses, then one could live however he wished, with no consequences, neglect good, practice evil, it doesn't matter, because we're saved by faith, not works. So it does seem there was some level of confusion and concern, at least among the elders, regarding how this issue should be understood and how the integrity of holiness and righteousness could be preserved in a faith system. Verse 7. And then, when there had been much dispute, Reese and McGarvey supposed that this was simply the apostles allowing the Judaizers to vent their opinions before responding to them, but I think it might be much more than that. As we just noted, I think that there had been a real measure of vacillation, at least on the part of the elders, and there was genuine uncertainty in the minds of some, and wrong ideas in the minds of others. But the manner in which the dispute was settled is noteworthy. The delegates did not vote on which proposition would carry the day. The process involved first the testimony of witnesses, then the testimony of miracles, and finally, the testimony of Scripture. Verse 7 continues But Peter rose up and said to them Peter's place at the council has been greatly exaggerated by Roman Catholic commentators who call him the leader of the discussion. If anything, it is James who the text sets forth as the president and superintendent of the meeting. Peter was a significant person in the work of Christ during the establishment of the church, and there can be no doubt that he was looked to as a leader by the other apostles, and that Jesus gave many special tasks to him, including the one he's about to mention. But his role at this meeting is to give testimony, and so he does. Men and brethren, you know that a good while ago, God chose among us that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. By God's choosing him a good while ago, he evidently refers to the vision he received on the rooftop of Simon the Tanner's house in Joppa and the commission of the Holy Spirit to go and preach to Cornelius and company. That happened about ten years prior. But in the subsequent decade, Peter and the other apostles had made the personal determination to continue preaching only to the Jews (Galatians 2.9). That work had been very effective. And until the incident with Herod Agrippa II, no significant opposition had interrupted the apostles' labors among their own people. So even though they knew the ordeal with Cornelius had taken place, and in fact that it precipitated the ministry of Paul and the work out of Antioch, it is possible that many of them had not seriously thought about it for a long time. And of course other similar incidents, like the conversion of the Ethiopian nobleman were likely still not known to the Christians in Jerusalem. Considering the facts of that case, it's highly probable that the first time the account of the Ethiopian was openly published was when Luke met Philip the Evangelist in Acts 21.8. So it was necessary for Peter to once again rehearse what God had shown them several years earlier. So God, who knows the heart, acknowledged them, that is the Gentiles, by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us, and made no distinction between us and them, purifying their hearts by faith. There are several significant phrases here I want us to consider. Peter says, God, who knows the heart, acknowledged them by giving them the Holy Spirit. Giving them the Holy Spirit referred to their baptism in the Spirit, their experience of the miraculous sign of the kingdom, when they praised God in tongues, presumably the Hebrew tongue. This, we concluded, was not really for the benefit of Cornelius and company, who would not have recognized what it meant, it was for Peter and the Jews who immediately recognized what it meant, namely that God was accepting these men into his kingdom. This was the same sign God had manifest in Jerusalem among the Jews on the day of Pentecost to show that Christ had received his kingdom from the Father. It is noteworthy that Cornelius and company received the Spirit in this way before they were baptized in water. In fact, it is implied by Peter's response that he would not have baptized them, if had it not been for this manifestation. You see, at that time, Peter agreed with the Judaizers. He could not conceive of how a man could be faithful to God apart from the law of Moses. But here, in Acts 15, Peter says, God, who knows the heart, acknowledged them. That is, God gave miraculous witness to these men that they had a genuine trust in Jesus as the Christ and a desire to submit to him as Lord and thus were candidates for baptism in water, the first act of loyalty to Jesus and the event in which sins are pardoned. Peter refers to the justification of the Gentiles as God purifying or cleansing their hearts by faith, that is, forgiving them of their sins through their faith in Jesus Christ. If they were right with God through Jesus then there was no basis for excluding them because of their failure to live according to the law of Moses. In fact, Peter goes on to point out to the others at this meeting what Paul pointed out to him in Galatians 2.14, that they had not been faithful to the law of Moses either. And if their justification came by the law, then all of them were doomed. Verse 10, Now therefore, why do you test God? by putting a yoke on the neck of the disciples which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear. The sense in which they were testing God was by ignoring Jesus' warnings about unrighteous judgments. Jesus said in Matthew 7, 1 and 2, Judge not, that you be not judged. For with what judgment you judge, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. And the Apostle Paul likewise warned his fellow Jews in Romans 2, 1 through 3, Therefore, you are inexcusable, O man, whoever you are who judge, for in whatever you judge another you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. But we know that the judgment of God is according to truth against those who practice such things. And do you think this, O man, you who judge those practicing such things and doing the same, that you will escape the judgment of God? Israel had only produced one man who was justified by the law of Moses, Jesus of Nazareth. To condemn the Gentiles for failing to keep it was to invite judgment on themselves without mercy. But we believe, Peter continues in verse 11, that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved in the same manner as they. This is a very profound statement. We seems best understood as a reference to the apostles, so Peter is speaking on behalf of all of them, and he says, we believe. At this point, the apostles had fully apprehended the gospel of God's grace, revealed to and through them by the Spirit of God, and the implications it had on the role of the law of Moses in the life of the Christian, even the Jewish Christian. Peter knows, and he says that all the apostles knew, and he boldly affirms that not only does God justify the Gentiles by faith and not by works of law, but he justifies the Jews the same way. Because the Jews are really in the same condition as the Gentiles, under sin and hopelessly condemned without pardon through Christ. Verse 12, Then all the multitude kept silent, This was a way of manifesting their respect for and consent to what Peter had stated. And they listened to Barnabas and Paul declaring how many miracles and wonders God had worked through them among the Gentiles. By recalling the miracles and signs and wonders that God worked through them during their ministry among the Gentiles, Paul and Barnabas were establishing that the Holy Spirit had borne witness to the legitimacy of their works. As Peter said before the Sanhedrin, God only gives the Holy Spirit to those who submit to his government, Acts 5.32. Or to use the words of Nicodemus, no one could do these signs that they did unless God was with them, John 3 and verse 2. So if God was working miracles through them, then God must have agreed with their methods, including extending full fellowship to the Gentiles who believed in Jesus. Verse 13. And after they had become silent, that is, after Paul and Barnabas concluded their testimony, James answered, James is the last speaker, and the text clearly presents him as the chief of the meeting, saying, men and brethren, listen to me. James is about to bring together the conclusion of the whole matter. Simon has declared how God at the first visited the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name. As far as the saints in Jerusalem understood, Cornelius was the first among the Gentiles who had been called into the Messiah's kingdom. Whatever work God had done among the nations, he had done through the Hellenists and without informing the leaders of the Jerusalem church. Cornelius was the first public convert of his kind, to be sure, so there's nothing problematic about this statement considering things we've already studied about the Ethiopian eunuch and others. But the most striking thing about what James says is that God visited the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name. The word James uses for people was the special term which the Jews reserved only for themselves in contrast to how they would speak of the nations. The meaning is that God had officially and formally constituted for himself a new kind of covenant people in this world, a people From the Gentiles as well as the Jews. For his name is a Hebrew way of saying these would be his own special people. Verse 15. And with this the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. Note that the final word, the absolute authority that brought closure to the presentation of apostolic witness and miraculous experience, was the scripture. Even at this early season, when the Christian scriptures are only just beginning to appear, the true religion of Israel survives in the hearts of the first disciples. By the time of Christ, when the office of prophet had ceased from Israel, the scripture alone was viewed as the deposit of divine truth and the source of authority and direction for God's people. Though a new people were being created... They continued to honor the Scripture, and there was coming a time when their own contributions to the Scripture would arise to an equal position among the followers of Christ. But the words of the prophets to which James refers are certainly worth considering in more detail. Note that he says, the prophets, and though the bulk of his citation comes from the Greek translation of Amos nine eleven through 12 There are also insertions from Jeremiah and Isaiah that contribute to the point James is drawing out of the ancient writings. After this, I will return, and I will build up the tabernacle of David which has fallen down. I will rebuild its ruins, and I will set it up, so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord who does all these things." known to God from eternity are all His works. The brief phrase "I will return" is inserted after the first word of Amos 9:11, but it is generally agreed by scholars to come from Jeremiah 12:15. And this is extremely significant because Jeremiah 12 verses 15 through17 is an exhortation for the Gentiles to turn to God. Then it shall be, "After I've plucked them out, that I will return, And have compassion on them and bring them back. Everyone to his heritage and everyone to his land. And it shall be, if they will learn carefully the ways of my people to swear by my name as the Lord lives, as they taught my people to swear by Baal, then they shall be established in the midst of my people. With this text as an introduction, James proceeds from the text to Amos. After this, I will rebuild the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down, and I will rebuild its ruins, and I will set it up. Remember that the word tabernacle simply means tent. And in the ancient Jewish writings, the tent of a family was a way of describing that family's lineage and offspring. So God is predicting a restoration of the family of David, his royal line, which would mean the restoration of his kingdom to Israel. But notice the consequence. So that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord who does all these things. God will bring the nations to be his people. This is what the Lord declared he would do. And James says this is what Peter and Paul are showing he has done. In the New King James Version, the last phrase known to God from eternity are all his works, is presented as the words of James himself. But the New American Standard Version, and most modern scholars, suggest that like the phrase from Jeremiah, this is another snippet from another prophet, which James inserted into his quotation. In this case, the source is Isaiah chapter 45, verses 21 through 22. "'Tell and bring forth your case. Yes, let them take counsel together.' Who has declared this from ancient time? Who has told it from that time? Have not I, the Lord? James' citation takes these three questions and combines them into a powerful statement. But then Isaiah continues, And there is no other God besides me, a just God and a Savior. There is none besides me. Look to me, and be saved, all you ends of the earth. For I am God, and there is no other. Indeed, the combined witness of God's work among them and God's word to them declared that the justification of the nations was his plan all along. If Jesus was the Messiah, if the tabernacle of David had been restored in him, then the Gentiles becoming the people of God is precisely what should have been expected. But it would not be through the law of Moses. It would be through faith in Jesus Christ. Thanks for listening to Verse by Verse. I'm Clinton DeFrance. I'm a Christian Bible student and evangelist from Tulsa, Oklahoma, and this podcast is made available by the Congregation of Christians, of which I am a member in East Tulsa. Please come meet us if you have the chance. You can learn more about us at our website, TulsaChurchOfChrist.com. Our music is from Andrew Martin, a very talented Christian brother in the Dallas-Fort Worth area of Texas, You can check out his SoundCloud for more beautiful and uplifting productions from him. For news, articles, previous episodes, or to request a Bible study or a lecture series with me, visit vbvpodcast.com. Please subscribe to the podcast and give us a good review if you enjoy the studies. God bless and have a great week.
0: From all the dark places of earth's heathen races, oh, see how the thick shadows fly. The voice of salvation awakes every nation, Come over and help us to cry. The kingdom is spreading, O oh tell ye the story, God's better exalted shall be the earth shall be full of his knowledge and glory as waters that cover the sea with praising and singing and jubilant ringing their arms of rebellion cast down at last every nation the lord of salvation with glory their effort shall crown the kingdom is spreading, O oh tell ye the story, God's banner exalted shall be. The earth shall be full of his knowledge and glory as waters that cover the sea.